Hello, and welcome to Creative Praxis, a podcast that blends academic theory with interviews of people talking about their creative practices. I'm Anna Griffith, a creativity researcher and assistant professor at the University of the Fraser Valley, and a guest on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Suhomish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Musqueam nations. And I am Sitlali Gonzalez, a student and undergraduate research assistant at the University of the Fraser Valley. I am co-hosting today from the traditional territory of the Stalo peoples. Today's episode concludes our mini-series on 4E cognition theory as a way to understand and make visible embodied creativity. This episode focuses on the fourth E, extended cognition, and the ways our tools become extensions of ourselves during physical creative processes. For theorists who study extended cognition, our thinking doesn't only happen in the brain. It isn't a process where our brain thinks of a creative idea and then it tells our body what to do. Like the other E's, extended cognition has a radically different understanding of the thinking process that is embodied, rooted in context, and consisting of dynamic feedback loops we respond to. But extended cognition takes it a step further, claiming that our tools actually become part of our thinking process. Creativity then, arises as an interplay between artist, tool, material, and specific constraints. In other words, creativity isn't just an artist imagining something with their minds and then taking specific action to create it. The creative process happens as the artist works with their tool, adjusting and responding physically as well as analytically, and in that process, new things are created or revealed. Writing about the creativity of jewelers, Chris Babber, Tony Camaro, and Jamie Hall state, that skilled practitioners do not distinguish between the tool as an external artifact and their hands, but rather feel the tool as part of themselves. As we have talked about in previous episodes, many scholars argue that we can understand creativity and cognition more fully if we consider the ways it is embodied, involves the senses, and operates in response to social and material environments. Doing so, allows us to consider the creativity within the physical behavior of the artist as they adjust the feedback from the tools and materials they are working with. You might remember from earlier episodes that the four E's often overlap and inform one another. As with the other E's, extended cognition directly responds to the environments we are in, relies on our embodied skill and previous experiences we have had working with our tools, and the dynamic feedback loops between material, tool, and practitioner. Catherine Hayes, Chris Kubel, and Roger Molina write that extended cognition is the view that cognition is not only embodied, but extended to the environment, based on the theory of distributed cognition, which views cognition as not solely occurring in the mind, but across objects, people, and time. I will point out that this E is the most contested part of 4E theory, and it can be challenging to think of our tools as part of our thinking process. But as we're trying to talk about the physical dimensions of our creative practices, it's helpful to consider the influence and impact the tools and materials we work with have on us. Ori theory has helped us to see ourselves as embodied beings that can create from physical impulses and responses. It has explained how our creativity is rooted within contexts and arises as we respond to environments. It also has shown how creative impulse happens not just individually, but collectively. Now, it's asking us to consider how our tools shape our perception and creativity. 
helping to explore extended cognition and embodied creativity, is photographer Sarah Sovereign. Sarah is a healing-informed narrative photographer in the Fraser Valley with a background in visual arts from UFV and a master's in counseling from City University. Using photography, she works with clients to help transform personal stories and experiences into visual language. Her work is available to view at sarahsovereign.com and Recraft Creative, where she offers neurodivergent-friendly mentorship, workshops, and gatherings for creatives. Welcome, Sarah. We're so happy that you could join us today. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. <laughs> so what does the term embodied creativity mean to you and your practice? Hmm. Well, I mean, I think that I, I, everything that you just said is 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 so spot on for me. I mean, I, I, I do think of my, my camera sometimes as an extension of myself. And I also think that like, you know, when I am taking images, there's a sense that like, I'm seeing the world, I'm framing everything through my own thoughts, my own bias, my own ideas about things. And so to, to that end, my camera definitely is an extension of myself and how I photograph people is also, it's me telling a story of them. So, and, and then I think too, in terms of using my body to, to take images, I mean, I'm a, I'm a neurodivergent person. So as a neurodivergent person, um, there's been a lot of, a lot of study, especially lately around the concept of stimming. Um, and usually that's a term that we think of more as it applies to autism, but there's a lot more research coming out about ADHD and stimming. Uh, and so I have a, a late life ADHD diagnosis, and that's something that I've really been thinking about a lot. And I've been folding it into my practice, my experiences as a woman with ADHD and how that kind of changes the way that I do things. So when you talk about, you know, thought processes happening up here and figuring things out, that's not how I've ever really learned. I've always had to take the information and then figure out some, something to do with it so that I can actually make sense of it. And so what I do a lot of the time um, as a photographer, one of my passions is, is visual storytelling. And that's the process of helping someone um, transform their story into visual language. And I think that that really plays into this, this notion of embodied creativity because you're getting into it and you're unfolding the story with somebody else. And once it's unfolded, you definitely see, you see things that maybe you didn't notice before. You're able to um, put something that maybe didn't have a word to it. You're able to put it into something that someone else understands and something that you understand as well. And so I find a lot of the time, whenever I'm approaching any kind of a um, a creative project or, or a visual storytelling session, I find that I do it. And as I'm doing it, things change, things shift, it becomes something else. And I think having that grace and that self-compassion and that, that space to be able to do that enriches the experience, enriches the final project. And you can take all of that information and then move it into something else and let that process as well. How does your body factor into your photography or what role does your body play in your creative process? So in terms of my body, um, I mean, I think it's just this, this idea of, of getting out there and starting to shoot. I, there's something that I did recently called um, 24 stories and I'm just finishing up that part of it. And 24 stories actually started out as the 24 hour portrait project. And so the idea, it just came to me one day and within two weeks I had it launched, ready to go and set up. 
And it was this idea of what would it look like to move through town for 24 hours and take a picture of somebody once an hour for 24 hours. And so I did that. I did that in March and it was, (laughs) it was awful. (laughs) Um, because we did it and it was so cold out. And the way that I had planned it um, meant that there were these great big gaps. And so there were some times I was with a a friend who helped me with it. So at some times we were in her truck, just kind of sitting there miserable, waiting for the next person to come, freezing cold, so tired. It's two in the morning. And then what would happen is we would um, our, our, our person would show up and we'd have this like beautiful five to 10 minutes of like creating together, re-energizing ourselves and then immediately crash again. So what I did is I, I took that project, I looked at it and I was like, how can I tweak these things and make it a little bit better? So then we moved into June and we did the 24 hour portrait project for June. I packed as much as I could into those 24 hours. I planned these big things. Uh, my friend and I ended up getting tattoos during the project. We, we photographed a tattoo artist. I got a tattoo. We went dragon boating. I almost got hit by a train. It was just a wild ride from start to finish. But what ended up happening was that at the very end, around 5 a.m., I passed out. I just completely passed. I have no memory of really anything. I woke up at my friend's house. She had like a bag of almonds next to me and four gallons of water. And what had happened is I'd gone through that entire day, that entire project, drinking just an iced Americano. That's all I'd I'd had all day. I was so focused on getting through this project and all of this energy that we were generating. And I just completely crashed. And so what ended up changing for me and how I moved forward through the project in the future was I really had to start paying attention to my body. Um, and that's not something that's always come easy for me. Um, so I really had to think about you know, what I needed to tweak with the project in order to make it sustainable for me and in order to make sure that every portrait that I took was as beautiful as it could be, that it was really honoring the person that was showing up. Um, and that I was shooting. So we moved into September of that same year. So we did three projects in a year and we split it up over two days. I took some really great portraits. It was much kinder to ourselves. Um, But then I completely burned out (laughs) completely and totally. So this year, so that was in 2018. And this year I wanted to do it and I wanted to tweak it. So I took everything that I had learned in, in being there and processing it and doing it live. I took all of those things and I turned it into 24 stories, which takes place over a week. Um, 24 portraits, all dealing with how people have experienced 2020. And um, just kind of like spread out all those shoots. I planned um, with the person whose story that like who, who was telling the story, we planned all of the shoots. We were able to do some incredible things. And I was able to actually rest um, rest my body in between, which was so important and something that I was not making room for in the same way before. So I think that I've, I've really begun, especially with having burned out, um, I've really begun to understand how to nourish my body and nurture my body as I, as I create and how important that is in terms of my creative process. Because as soon as I'm exhausted, as soon as I'm tired, I'm not connecting with people in the same way and I'm not making the same kind of art. Yeah, absolutely. And I really, what I like about what you're saying is that 
um, you're developing a creative process that for one honors uh, the sustainability of your practice by paying attention to to your physical health um, or your embodied health, which has so many other dimensions to it. Mm -hmm. So theoretically speaking, extended cognition suggests that for creative practitioners, their tools become part of the thinking process. What role does your camera play in your creative process? Or what influences does your camera or the rest of your equipment have on your creative work? Oh, um, so much. <laughs> I think I've always sort of looked at my camera as a, as a tool for storytelling. And I've been taking photos for such a long time. I started taking photos when I was 11 years old. And I, I've just kind of built on that and, and learned different ways to shoot. And the equipment that I use definitely changes the way that those stories are seen and felt by other people. So often I shoot with um, a 35 millimeter lens and it's a very intimate lens. It allows me to get very close to people. And through the pandemic, I, I had to sort of consider what am I going to change about this? Like how, I'm gonna, how am I going to keep taking photos of people when I have to keep this distance? And there's um, these masks and all of these things between us. And I found that when I was shooting with um, lenses that had me a little farther back, I was missing that intimacy that I had felt before. So I'm, I'm very grateful that I've been able to kind of move back into using the 35. But the tools that, that I use, they definitely influence how that story is seen how people feel as they're being photographed, how people interpret the final portraits or the final story. And there's a really, I don't know if you've read um, On Photography by Susan Sontag, but it's, it's one of my favorite things. It's been a while since I've read it. Um, but she talks about the bias that we carry when we photograph anybody else. We're always going to be photographing people through our own lens. And so that's something that I, I, I think also comes into play is that my choices with the lenses that I'm using and the equipment that I'm using, how I shoot, you know, from what level I shoot on for how I feel about the person that I'm photographing, all of that information is going to impact the final story and the final portrait that I'm, that I'm taking. Does that answer your question? Is that <laughs> yeah. yeah, it really does. And, and I just want to say from a, from a disciplinary perspective that really values our bodies as tools, our bodies as the, the storyteller. I understand and respect that you're, you're talking about your camera as this tool that is an extension of you, but I also hear the way that your body and your embodied connection to your camera influences um, how you are connecting with people um, and how mm. you're responding to the, the story that you're telling, uh, which I just think is so fascinating. For post-phenomenologists, our active engagement with technology, so in this case, your camera, influences our human engagement with the world. So do you think that your camera influences, shapes, or transforms how you see the world? Absolutely, yeah. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff about, um, you know, you can have a group of photographers photographing the same scene and every photo is going to be different. There's a lot of competition in photography. There's a lot of comparison. But the thing is, is that we're, we all have unique voices. And all of those little choices that we're making are all going to impact the final, the final photo. And when, so I don't, I don't, I don't know if, if, if you both knew this, but like, I, I also have my master's in counseling. So when I first went into doing visual storytelling, it was really important to me that 
I do it in the safest way that I possibly can. So that's why I decided to go and, and get my master's in counseling. And as I went through that process, I began to realize that there, there's a real divide almost between operating as a counselor and operating as a photographer. When you're a counselor, your goal is to be unbiased and your goal is to, you know, just walk with your, with your client. And when you're a photographer, there's a lot more direction that happens. You are deciding how that story will be framed. You're deciding how that story will be interpreted both by yourself by your camera and by the people that are going to be looking at that portrait after. So I think that that comes into to play with everything that I sort of think about. And every time that I take photos, especially through a visual storytelling session, is I'm always aware of, of how my ideas and how the things that I'm using and how my camera and angles, and all of that kind of stuff is going to change. And I think that when you see different photographers interpret different stories, you see a completely different story sometimes, you know, just the ways that, that, that we that we see the world. And when you look at different Instagram grids for different photographers, you can definitely see that like every photographer is so different with their experience of the world and how they see it and how they choose to photograph it. And uh, yeah, just very cool. So when you're not actively on a, on a, a photography shoot, if you're, if you're just walking down the street, do you think that your experience as a photographer is still impacting what catches your attention, what you notice, or is it something else happening? Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. I have, I, one of the things that I do all the time, for example, is like when I'm driving down the road, I'm always looking for shoot locations. So I'm always reading the light and what it looks like. And, and I tend to find these little out of the way places, like little ditches and stuff. And one of the ones that I used really recently was a house that had been torn down and the lot was cleared and it was just completely empty. And it just looks so cool to me. So I've now done two shoots in this weird space, abandoned house lot. And, um, and, and so, I mean, I think that like, I'm constantly looking for like, you know, where can I create things? So sometimes when you find those locations, it, it becomes a space where you can, it, it, it inspires a shoot that you want to do there. So we ended up doing the florist that I work with uh, named Lisa Glover, and she created this huge floral headpiece. And we went out to this house lot and we just, you know, photographed this this piece and how to model and, and did the whole thing. So yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm always thinking in terms of, you know, what I want to shoot next and, and looking at, at the things around me in terms of how would this translate and how could I use this? And I find sometimes that that's something that just kind of happens. I'm driving and I, I get inspired by something and then I'm moving forward with it and doing something super weird. So yeah. <laughs> That's really powerful how you're able to just get into that, so to speak, zone of, well, it, I mean, it's not always conscious about how you're looking at the world. And I think it's really powerful that you acknowledge that um, when you're a photographer, you carry like that certain power to frame uh, someone in a certain way. And you do have that like sort of privilege. And it talks about like, I think it goes into like in the intersectionality, I guess, of 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 creativity and like who whose story are we telling and uh like are we representing the person that uh that we are photographing and i think that's that was really powerful um i wanted to ask you sarah what does responsiveness look like or feel like in photography because i think this one ties into the the last question that we talked about and so like you're looking you're going about your day and then you look at a location and you see a potential for that location so 
I'm wondering, I'm curious how, what that looks like in, in photography specifically. One of the things that we don't talk about very often, but I think it is beginning to be talked about more often is ethics and photography. So it is really, really important for us to like, when you have a camera and you're documenting something, you have an incredible power. And while when, when you take a photo, you retain the rights to that photo. But I think it's really important to be aware of how we're photographing people, why we're photographing people, and how we're using that power. And so those discussions, you see them more and more often in terms of if, if someone is photographing somebody on the street, for example, and then using those images, making a profit off of those images or like highlighting the suffering of somebody else. We have to have an, an awareness and a responsibility for... Oh, I'm losing my train of thought. <laughs> me, um, am I making sense? Am you I making are. Sense? You are. And to me, it sounds like you're talking about our the ethical responsiveness or the responsiveness that you have as a photographer to the ethics of of what it is you're doing. Yeah. Like, I mean, I think one one thing that comes to mind actually is in 1985, there was a photograph that, sh- that showed up on the cover of National Geographic. And I think it was called Afghan Girl. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a photograph of a, of, a, of a young girl with these striking eyes. And the photographer built, I think, their whole career over that. I think they made a lot of money with that. They won awards through that image. And eventually they were able to sort of like track down th- this woman like many, many, many years later. And she had not benefited at all from this photograph. And it just doesn't seem very ethical. It doesn't seem very kind. It doesn't seem very ethical. It doesn't seem very responsible. So I do think that whenever we take photos and whenever we document, we have to make sure that we have permission to do so in some ways. I mean, I think it's a a complex issue, but I think we need to be aware of allowing uh, the agency of other people in how we depict them and how we photograph them. I I think it's it's really important to at least be considering that as we're as we're documenting them and what we what we're getting from from that documentation, like what, what, we're, what we're receiving from that and whether or not that's ethical and whether or not that's serving that person as well, if that Absolutely. makes sense. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And a different tack on this question of responsiveness. And you mentioned this at the, be- the beginning when you first started talking about how you take photographs and the ways that you, you adapt as, as the, the photo shoot is unfolding or as certain things or constraints within the the setting are are unfolding. Can you talk a little bit about what that feels like? How do you know to respond mm-hmm. as a, as a photo shoot is unfolding? I mean, I think that there's there's this thing when people get together and they're creating together, it's like a certain type of magic. There is an energy that you feel when you're creating with somebody else where you're just like you know and it's almost like you if you're creating with the right people, I think there's that sort of freedom where you can be like, let's try this, let's try this, let's do this thing. I'm going to like lay on the ground and then we're going to try this thing. And when you hit into that, it's almost like hitting into a stream. And when you hit into it, it's just everything gels. And so sometimes what I do, like I'm, I'm known for overshooting. I overshoot all the time. And I'll get home sometimes and I'll have like 2,500 files to like go through and call. And I'll end up taking like, 20 files from that and maybe five will be what I show. But I mean, when you're in the zone and you're just kind of, you're, you're photographing and you're, and you're creating with somebody else, 
just that process lets you know what it is. Like it, it leads to the images, those five images that you're going to show. That's what leads to it. Getting into that flow with other people. And so when I know that things are going really, really well, like I, I can always tell when things aren't gelling. And I can always, and some of the people that have worked with me quite a bit, they know too. And they're like, you're not, you don't like this. Like this isn't really working. And, but when I'm, when I'm able to actually like get into it, I almost forget about, about my body. Like I'll come home sometimes from shoots and I will be exhausted and like, feel like I'm broken. And maybe I laid in like mud for an hour, just shooting these different ways because there's just something like what's more important is what you're shooting. That's what it feels like. It feels like you just, you, you're, you're into it. You know that the, you're getting closer and closer and closer to this image that you want. And you might not even know exactly what it looks like yet, but you're moving through it and you're in it. And you know that like that stream is going to take you where you want to go. And we did that actually in, uh, in December. Um, I went with my, my friend Siobhan and uh, my friend Ashley, and we just, we had this idea that we wanted to put Ashley in water. And when we showed up, when we actually drove out to Cultus Lake, it was a foggy day, which is my, I love when things are foggy and it seems to happen like so little. So everything was really, really foggy. So we were already really excited and we ended up pulling off to the side of the road and going down a steep embankment and getting to the water. And there's this log that's like kind of fallen over and it's half in the water. And it was just this feeling of like this, whatever we need is in this space. Like, I know that it's here. We just have to figure out what it is. And we shot there for about two hours. I ended up going into the water in the middle of December. Ashley was in the water and we got an image that I'm really, really proud of. And the the goal as we were shooting was that we we, I wanted to explore my own feelings about grief. And so going through that process, I developed a clearer story for the story about grief that I wanted to tell. And then editing and culling those photos and finding the final ones that I wanted to share just clarified that for me. And I think that if I had just been writing notes and kind of, you know, thinking up here about what I wanted to do, I don't think I would have had the same movement, the same processing of, of that story and those emotions and figuring out exactly how I wanted to tell that story. I think that what you said there is really powerful because it taps into the potential of creativity and how you as a photographer specifically are responding to what is in your environment. Mm. Um, so I wanted to ask you what aspects of photographic creativity might transfer to other situations or disciplines? Um, so, I mean, I think that photography is like a really mutable medium. Like you're able to use it in so many different ways. And I've kind of melded it a little bit with um, therapy in a way. I also do work through Recraft Creative, which is kind of an offshoot, which is where you... The whole premise of it is gathering people together in order to create these creative experiences and almost like a creative spark. So things like gathering in the woods and like just listening to music and observing and experiencing that and being fully present to that experience and then taking that and seeing what like processes and develops from that. So that's one way that I've kind of moved moved from photography into this other kind of medium. And the other thing too, I think is like, and this is what happened like when I when I wrote my thesis, I wrote my thesis on uh, memory and dementia. 
And this idea that the things that we hold on to that people leave behind or the things that um, just the things that people have, they become these little memory objects and they serve as as ways for us to remember and honor people who might not be there anymore or people who have forgotten, you know, a, a majority of their memories. And so for the thesis, they actually allowed me to document that. So I had um, photographs that I took of these memory objects. And so it became kind of a photo essay. So, I mean, I think that there's, yeah, I mean, I think that with, with photography, you can move into storytelling. You can, you, can, um, you can definitely match your photographs that you take with text and kind of like stick in that story. Um, but I think it can also clarify your ideas if you just want to write something, if you just want to have, you know, have something and, and, and be clear on it. Yeah, it, it's just such a, a photography is such a, a fluid medium. I think you could apply it to almost anything that you wanted to. And as somebody who processes visually and processes by sort of doing those things, I think it's, it's, that's always been really, really helpful for me. And I, I used photography the whole time that I, I went through school. I was constantly photographing things. Like even when I took English, I was often taking things like The Secret Garden. And I knew that I had to write an essay about that, but I would do a whole shoot around The Secret Garden first and then kind of process exactly what I wanted to say about it from there. I hope that answered your question. <laughs> yeah, it does. You speak so eloquently about so many facets of embodied creativity from almost the, as you said, the kind of you forget about your body at certain times as you're so focused on, on what it, what the process that's happening um, through your camera, what you're seeing, but yet the very central role that your body as a photographer s still has within your, within your work. So before we, we ask our last question, is there anything else that you'd like to, to say about embodied creativity or about the use of the, the camera as this extension of yourself? One thing I, I could add is, is just that photography is, for me, it's about connection. So it's, and, and I think that kind of plays into embodied creativity too, because it's this, you know, the connection to your body, the connection to movement, the connection to other people. And I think about it, and I mentioned it before too, it's kind of like you're in a stream or you're in a river and there's just, you're just kind of flowing. So I think there's, it, it's such an important tool for connecting to yourself, to other people, to uh, your ideas, to your, you know, to these things that are motivating you and speaking to you and encouraging you to just get out there and shoot. I mean, I think that whenever I have an idea that I'm really excited about, I can't stop myself from not going and doing it. Like I have to go do it. Um, and I get so excited and I, luckily I have like such a really supportive group of people around me where I can message them at 3am on like a Thursday and be like, are you busy tomorrow? Can we go up to like, can I, you know, can I climb into the slough and can we take some photos and like try some stuff? And, uh, so, I mean, I, I think it's just, it, it's such a, a therapeutic tool of connection and, and it unites so many people, so many different ways. And I've often thought too, that like, for me, being there and photographing the scene and like, and, and taking the photos, like, that's what really, what I really, really love about it. But there's something there too, for all of the people that are around and helping and assisting and, and, um, and, and being shot, there's all of these people that are working together. There's something about all of us being there, working towards this, this final artistic piece that just really feels like a sort of connective magic. Like it's very it's amazing. It's my favorite thing when you hit that, when you hit that spot. Yeah. 
Well, thank you so much, Sarah, for such an engaging conversation and for sharing your, your work and your process with us. Um, if people would like to learn more about your work, what is the best way for them to find you? Uh, you can find me on Instagram uh, at Sarah Sovereign. Um, you can also find me at Recraft Creative, which is also on Instagram um, under Recraft Retreat. And uh, it's called Recraft Retreat because it started out as a retreat space where a group of us just went out to a, like a remote ranch and we just created together for like three days. And then the pandemic happened. <laughs> so then we had to kind of like rework what we were doing. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you can, you can find me there for sure. Thank you so much for sharing your time this morning and all of your insights. Um, it's so rich what you're offering us. So just thank you oh. so much. Thank you so much for having me. This is, this is amazing. What you're doing is amazing. It's so exciting. Um, yeah. Thank you for joining us today. And we hope you are inspired to unleash your creativity. We would love to hear about your creative process or the ways you cultivate creativity in your life. So please leave us a comment and tell us what you do to create. The Creative Praxis podcast is written and produced by Anna Griffith with production support and sound editing by Setlali Gonzalez and Brendan George. Music for this podcast is created and produced by Wadaboy from Pixabay. New episodes are released every month and can be found wherever you get your podcasts. 